Okay, if you have your Bible, let's open together to the book of Hebrews. Unless you want to teach this one. Okay. Okay. Hebrews has some complex passages. This may be the most. But we're going to dig in. One of the truths about Calvary's history is we don't go around things in the Bible. And going through them can uh, cloud your head a little bit. My prayer for us this week is that as we go through this passage, which has been a source of differentiating interpretations over the history of the church, you would hear the Holy Spirit speak to you what is the weight of this passage. By the time we're done, I I want to speak a word of encouragement to everyone who's in the room who is a Christian. And by being a Christian, I mean by that you, not your parents, but you have said to Jesus Christ, I trust in you with all my heart to save me from my sins and give me eternal life, which I don't deserve because I'm a sinner, but because you died for me and your sacrificial death forgives me of my sins. I trust in you today. And if you have never said that to Jesus... Here's a couple things I'm hoping you'll hear. It matters that you do. It's perilous if you don't. And there is time for you to do that right now. Okay? So is it, you know it's serious, what we're going to do. Are you with me? Uh, You can handle this. You can handle this. Chapter 5, verse 11. Um, Just before I say that, let me remind you that the central teaching of the book of Hebrews is to show the superiority of Jesus Christ to everything else. He is superior to prophets, He is superior to angels, He is superior to Moses. He is superior to all the priests and even to the high priests of the Old Testament Levitical system. He is superior in the initiation of a new covenant which supersedes all of the obligations of the Old Testament or better fulfills them. He is superior to everything that has come before him. That is the teaching and the theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus brings to completeness all that has gone before. Now remember that the audience of the book of Hebrews are Jewish people who live under a time of persecution. And the warnings to them are elaborate. We've already seen in chapter 2 that the question is raised, you Jewish people who grew up under the old covenant, if you neglect Jesus, 
who fulfills the old covenant in initiating a new covenant through his blood, if you neglect him, how will you escape? And the implied answer is, you won't. And then in chapter 3, three times he wrote, quoting from the Old Testament, today, if you hear the voice of God, don't harden your heart against God. Some of you may be in this room today, and you get a sense that God's speaking to you. you. Just hear this three times. This is the day you're hearing from God. Don't let your heart get hard against God. It's a warning, because if you get hard, you can get deceived by sin, and then you can miss what God came through Jesus to do. And then in chapter 4, one more warning that happened there in verse 2 He reminds them that the good news of the gospel came to them just as it did to us, but the message they heard did not benefit them because it wasn't united with faith. So they heard the message, but they didn't believe the message. And so you know, I told you this is a sermon that was preached, and so there's teaching and Old Testament exposition, and then there's an admonition, and we're about to enter an admonition again. And this one is the most severe of all. And if we described everything that he just said in the earlier chapters, here he sort of names what the problem is. This is chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say. Got to go back and say, what's the this that he has much to say about? It is the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he's going to cover that in chapter 7, two weeks from today, and so we'll get there then. We're not doing that today. I have much to say about that. And it's hard to explain. Thank you. (laughs) It's hard to explain since you have become, everybody, dull of hearing. So here is the spiritual diagnosis of the audience that he's speaking to. In the most frank terms, you've become dull of hearing. Do you know what the word dull means? It comes from two Greek words, no push. You got no push. You got no drive. You're dull. You're stopped. You're stuck. You're sort of, um, sort of sluggish. It's used in other ways. Dull, dimwit, negligent, lazy, your ears stopped up, a kind of willful ignorance, immaturity, you're dull. You're dull of hearing. Lucy used to tell our kids, you're sitting there like a bump on a pickle. It's like, what's it for? I don't know, you're just, you're just like not moving. You're dull of hearing. That's the diagnosis of a group in the audience that he's writing to who are still stuck on the Old Covenant. Verse 2 and 3 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. The basic principles you might understand in their mind would be the elementary teachings. It actually has the sense of ABCs. 
the most elementary instruction of the oracles of God that probably refer to the old covenant realities. You ought to be teachers of the things, but you need someone to teach you again the elementary principles of the oracles, the words of God. You need milk, not solid food. This is not a compliment. I think what he's saying to this audience is that you're close, but you're far away. He's saying to those who are close to Judaism, come to maturity to the new covenant reality of Christ. All of those things which you ought to be able to understand in all their fullness, in fact, teach all of the old covenant realities and the way in which all the old covenant realities that God did in the Old Testament were always only pointing forward to Jesus. You ought to be able to do that, but you're not. You're still in the old elementary things. It's time to grow up. You need to come to the fulfilled realities of the new covenant. It is an admonition to grow spiritually, um, not only for ourselves, but that you would be able to teach other people also. Now, this is contextual to a group of Jews in 65 AD who were living in persecution in some place in the Roman Empire, and they were being encouraged to leave behind their adherence to the Old Covenant, embrace the New Covenant realities in Christ, and then become teachers of that. In no uncertain terms, they are immature in what they know. There's nothing wrong with giving milk to an infant. But it's a sad thing, you know, if you're 25 and eating milk and smashed peas only. There's a problem with a, a diet that doesn't have solid food. That's the point. You have milk because you're unskilled, inexperienced. You've had a failure to launch into the realities of the spiritual life. This is a word of a warning. And it's because they, they're dull of hearing. They hear. You know when you get in an elevator and you hear music, muzak? You're not really listening to it, but it's there in the background. And I think that's the idea. I, I hear it, I hear it, I hear it, but have I ever, you know, am I, am I in it? No, I'm not. Verse 14 of chapter 5. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. One of the marks of maturity is an internalization of the truth of God, the oracles of God, the words of God, the realities of Christ's life in me that trains my heart not only that I know certain things, but then my maturity results in a life that is able to discern between good and evil because I'm growing up to maturity. And we say this all the time, but it's not enough that we're a Bible-teaching church that we all know the Bible and its truth, but that we what? That, that we actually can say, I know God's truth, and therefore I know how to discern what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. I'm spiritually mature enough that the impulse of my heart, because of my life, results in me looking at certain things and then being able to say yes to that, no to that. Cling to what is good, abhor what's evil. Where does that come from? It comes by spiritual maturity. 
how does spiritual maturity happen? And this translates beyond the first century culture into our own. How does one become spiritually mature? It has to be that I listen with good hearing and that I believe and then I obey. And that's sort of the pathway to spiritual maturity. So can you discern between good and evil in your life and has the Word of God helped us? They weren't able to because they weren't applying the new covenant realities. But God's goal for us is maturity that produces a muscle of faith that we believe what God has said and it results in obedience. We need to stop here and everybody get that? You can't become spiritually mature just by knowing here. It has to have a translation into our life that the impulse of my life is to want to do what the truth in my head says. And that's how solid food then becomes more more rich truth becomes reality. And I might just say this. Unless we obey what we know, it's unlikely that the window of revelation is going to continue to be thrust open that we would know more and more. The pathway to maturity is hearing with good ears, believing with a whole heart, and obeying with a will and a mind. That's the pathway to maturity. And they didn't have that. Questions? Okay. So verse 1 of chapter 6 then Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of, of, here's six things, repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, those two probably go together, and of instructions about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Let's leave those elementary things behind. I, I look at those sometimes and I say, those are the elementary things? <laughs> but he, he said the elementary thing is leave behind the elementary teaching of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That's elementary. Dead works, which frequently became associated with strict adherence to Old Testament law and legalistic righteousness and self-righteousness, dead works whereby I'm trying to earn my salvation by my works, you repent of that and have faith in God, that is the ABC of the Christian life, right? And we want to move on to deeper things. That's obvious. That's true. And then some of these other things are probably attachments of Old Testament, um, Old Covenant ceremonial experiences, washing of hands, laying, wa- uh, washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, which all of the Old Testament covenant pointed to, but he's saying those are the ABCs, we, we want to move on, but I'm not sure you have these yet, that's the point, point. and if you don't have these, that you're not going to be saved by works, which you have to repent of a desire to do works that lead to salvation and instead put faith in God. That's the elementary stuff. If, you're not, if you don't have that, you can't go on to maturity. So then he moves to the 
passage that is the most riveting. And that begins, uh, before we go there, see this, this word leave? It means to divorce. It, it means don't, don't build on all that old covenant reality. L- leave an adherence to that and cling only to Christ, to the new covenant. And I think if you remember the context here, that the elementary teachings of an adherence to Judaism and the Old Covenant and embracing the fullness of Christ who fulfilled all of those obligations is what he's steering them to do. It's, we never leave altogether these truths. It's not like we abandon them and say they're not true. It's like we want to move on. That's the point. Now he creates a condition in verse 4, 4 through 8, and 9 through 12 are two sides of the same coin of warning. The first is the dire side, and the second is the aspirational side. So what if a listener in 65 AD, reading this book of Hebrews or hearing the sermon preached, is one of these Jews who is clinging to the old covenant and not quite trusting in the realities of the new covenant, they are the ones, I think, are addressed in verses 4 through 8. So let's read. The question basically is, is this person that he's going to speak to in 4 through 8 a a believer in Christ? Or is he merely somebody who has been close to it but has never fully embraced it? Or is he giving some kind of hyperbole to scare them? All of these are possible scenarios that have been proposed by people. But I think if we begin to read verse 4, you'll see how urgent it is. He begins, for it is impossible. In the case of those, and then there are four conditions who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. If it's impossible, in the case of those who have experienced those four spiritual touches, let's finish the sentence in verse 6, it is impossible for those who have tasted that and then fallen away, It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So if you could break it down into a phrase, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. That's the sentence. Let's close in prayer. A lot of people think that this would be the place where I could insert here, then all those four, if we go back to verse four, Philip, thank you, um, these four phrases seem to indicate genuine conversion. And they, they do have a sense, enlightened, tasted the heavenly gifts, shared in the Holy Spirit, 
have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers to come, all of those characteristics do seem to indicate uh, some spiritual awakening, right? But I'm going to argue that it's something less than a full, genuine heart conversion. I'm helped by others in this. I don't think it should be understood that this is a conditional phrase, but a cumulative phrase, that they have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers to come, and they've fallen, and they've fallen away. And fallen away could mean they drift away, but I think in the context it means more than just casually drifting away. I think it means they repudiate. They reject. So listen, someone who, a, a Jewish person embracing the old covenant who has been around the church, seen these things, tasted the work of God in the church, and then repudiates it, it's possible for them to be saved, to come to repentance. The harshness of the description that follows in verse 6 demands that it be understood that this is a really serious condition in verse 6, if we can, the falling away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. It's not just a drift, it's a repudiation. Notice in verse 6, if they have, verse 4, since they, everybody, are, what's that? Present tense. So they had, but now they are. Now they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up in contempt by their repudiation of Him. So if you hear the argument those who I, I would suggest have been around, experienced, but today are rejecting Christ so that they are crucifying the Son of God to their shame, holding Him up to contempt, then repentance is ruled out because of their present action of repudiating Christ. Those who have fallen away here what is this phrase? I think it means they identify with those who at Calvary would have looked up to Jesus and said to him, crucify him, and they'd hurl insults at him. And so this phrase that today they are crucifying him, they are rejecting. They're with the crowd who said, he's, he's the one who deserves that. And they are saying, Christ deserves this death, holding him up to shame. Why? That, that's their position. Again, think in the context embrace the old covenant, see Jesus as a new covenant, and say, no, no, his death is what he deserved. By their repudiation of Christ, they are putting themselves in this moment outside of the possibility of repentance while they repudiate Christ. That makes sense, right? You, you can't embrace Christ and at the same time reject him. But at the same time, George Guthrie helps here. He says, if the incompleteness of these actions is stressed, 
if the incompleteness of this repudiation is stressed, it does not negate the possibility of those who are fallen away could in the future repent. And I think that's helpful, as we're going to see in a moment. But as long as they are currently crucifying the Son and subjecting Him to shame and repudiating Christ, they are rejecting Christ and repentance is not going to happen. Now, so I would suggest to you for a couple reasons that I want to look at to make sure you know that this individual who's probably in the mind of the author of Hebrews is someone who is around the realities of the new covenant but has never personally put their faith in Jesus. And this is his warning to them to say, it's urgent, you should. If you continue to repudiate the claims of Christ, there will be no hope for you. That's the point. As I said, some have thought that this is someone who genuinely is a Christian and they lose their salvation. I want you to know that I don't think the Bible teaches that. In, in the preponderance of all of the Bible, I think it is absolutely cured that when God saves you, you're saved altogether securely because He saves us. We don't save ourselves by our own doing. Whew, right? Uh, let me... Let me show you a couple of things that will be helpful for you. Oh, no, let's go to 7 and 8, and I'll show you. So he uses an agricultural illustration to describe this, of this group of people. It's like the land has drunk the rain that falls on it. It produces a crop of useful to those who, for whose sake it's cultivated. It receives a blessing from God. The water falls, and the crop produces a fruit that's good for the one who's watering it. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed near to being cursed, and its end, it's going to be burned. That is a picture of eternal judgment, that if you reject Christ, this is what's going to happen. But I truly believe that he's using this as a warning to them to shake them, because, and this is where we're careful, nobody in this room probably, I, I would say very few of us in this room are in danger of clinging to Old Testament Judaism and repudiating Christ instead. But we all have a word of warning here that is transferable to Americans in 2021 about being around the good news of the gospel for a long time, actually seeing God at work in a place like Calvary and watching week after week a sermon preached but having ears that aren't really tuned in. You hear me? But are you listening? You know, like, is it possible that, that in our context there could be dull ears who hear the gospel again and again and again and again, but never really come to the place where a person says, Lord Jesus, it was for me you died, and I believe you. It's not enough that my church believes this. I believe you. That's possible, everybody? Yeah. So we're warned by it. But those who have fallen away and drift away, um, did they drift away because they used to be saved and now they're not? Or 
were they just close and never really trusting Christ? I think it's the latter. Here's a verse from 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, another one of the apostles who said about people he described as anti-Christ, against Christ. And of them, he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. That's John's way of saying there's always people around the church and they, they're, they're close, but they depart because it's not really real for them. And we know, I, I, you know, we don't know what's in the heart of any person, but we know that people drift away. And thankfully, we have other stories for every, every you know, grandparent, parent of a prodigal those who were around it and are away, thankfully, we also have that, that it, it's a chapter. May it not be the final. You know, might it be the, the reality that those who walked away would come back before it's too late. And the picture of the prodigal is the father's waiting. He's there, and he's looking, and he's longing, and he's inviting. And when salvation is genuine in their heart, they can drift away and belong to him, but he calls them. When God saves, he saves, right? So let's look at three verses that I've also put up to supplement this. Number one... um, Philippians chapter 1, 6. Philippians 1, 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, everybody, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What's real about that? Who begins the work? Who does the work? Who saves the heart? Who makes a dead person alive? Who does that? Who's going to bring it to completion? It's God. So, who's ever wandered away from God? I have. I rebelled. So, these pictures are like, but God is doing the saving, and he will complete it. Jude chapter 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before his presence in his glory with great joy. Who does that? God does that. Maybe best of all is John chapter 10 where the good shepherd says, I give them eternal life and they will, everybody, never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I truly believe this passage in Hebrews, which does have a, a level of complexity is a reference to people who have been close but never have abandoned their dependence on the old covenant and embraced the new covenant realities of the one who fulfills all of that. And they are clinging to that. And the reason they're clinging to that is because the world is persecuting them in 65 AD. And they're going to go perhaps to persecution and prison and martyrdom if they cling to Jesus as Jews who knew the old covenant and they would rather reject Christ and embrace the world 
then reject the world and embrace Christ because it might mean their death, and so they are on the fence. That's what all of these warnings are about. Don't neglect, don't harden your heart, don't turn away, believe in the Lord. That's what that is. It's a serious warning, isn't it? But it's not over. In verses 9 through 12, there is a very gracious appeal And he begins in verse 9, though we speak in this way, I think he probably knows, this is tough, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. We don't want this to be true of you. Things that belong to salvation. Here's the coins turning over. It's not too late. Believe on the Lord. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints, and you still do. So they're around. He says, God's not going to overlook you. It's not too late. Turn. Okay? And then here is the corollary opposite to dullness of hearing, verse 11 and 12. We desire that each one of you show earnestness to have full assurance of hope to the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Like there have been models who have gone before in times of difficulty who have trusted God in it. We need those kind of models. We need models around the church who would say, you know what, it's been hard to follow Christ, but I have followed Christ. I have persevered through some very difficult times. I lost my job because of my faith. I, I took a stand at my company. I wouldn't do this, and I lost my job. But I'm telling you, it was worth it to be faithful to God. I had my senses trained to discern between good and evil, and I chose that, and it's been worth it even though I suffered. We need examples like that, who through faith and patience are faithful. And so the corollary to dullness of hearing is awaken a sharpness in your heart to hear and to really listen to him. Now, there are two principles that I want to summarize what I've tried to say to you this morning, and I hope you'll take these away, because remember, the point is, in the context, to a group of Christians or near Christians who were bailing out and deserting, drifting away, persevere to the end in full faith. So here's two principles. Number one, the pathway to spiritual maturity is hearing and believing and obeying the words of God. You want to grow as a Christian and you hear something here on a Sunday morning, don't stop up your ears against it. Say, okay, Lord, help me to apply this to my life. I want to listen to God and obey him. And you will grow and your spiritual senses will become stronger. And the second principle, which is the whole banner over all of this, is that perseverance is the verification of saving faith. It is not the means of acquiring saving faith. Hold on, hold on, hold on to the end. And if I've been holding on, Jesus said, okay, you held on, you're saved. No. That's... Everybody understands that's not how it works? 
We trust in Christ who himself sufficiently saves us by his grace. We rest in him. It's all him. And those who persevere demonstrate genuine saving faith. If it's scary and unsettling to you, could I just bring it down to this? The, the basic diagnosis that you should be able to answer today is this. Do you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior today with all of your heart? Today. Not did you walk down an aisle, did you make a decision 50 years ago, uh, but today. Because my concern is that there are a lot of people who come around and taste and get a sense of enlightenment that this, this is really cool. And then they never really personally trust in Christ and, ab and they abandon and they repudiate the work of Christ. That's a dangerous place. This is a call to believe today with all your heart. And I want to pray that God will help us do that. I do not want you to go away unsettled unless the Holy Spirit's doing that to you. Like you should just say, all right, Lord, I want to settle this. I, I want to trust in you with all my heart because Jesus paid it all. Is that right? And we don't trust in our ability to keep ourselves faithful. This is not a call like to a new set of, I got to get there. It's like, he got me there. I, I rest in him. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you are the fulfillment of, of every promise of the Old Covenant, of everything about your grace in the Old Testament pointed to fulfillment in Jesus. And you've paid it all. Now I pray that you will just help our hearts right where we are today to trust in you with all of our heart to save us from our own failures and sinfulness that we would turn to you and grow in you. Grow to maturity by believing what we've heard today and then acting on it. I pray for anyone who has been listening to me this morning with attentiveness because the Holy Spirit's been speaking. And for them, for you perhaps, as you listen to my voice, you have not been sure you personally have ever really trusted. You've been around it. Maybe your wife believes it. Maybe your husband has committed himself to Jesus, but you've just been in the periphery and you have never made a decision. Or maybe you're a young person here today and your grandmother loves Jesus. But you've never trusted Jesus. You've seen it in their lives but you've never. Why wouldn't today be the day that you just say to Jesus, I know you came for me. I trust in you today. 
I give you all of my heart to the best I understand. I ask you with all the faith I can muster to forgive me of my sins and to be my Savior and let me have eternal life through your grace. I know I can't earn it, so I receive it by faith. You say that to Jesus, and if you have, I just want you to sort of just raise your hand to me. Everybody's not looking, but you just raise your hand. I, I want to trust in Jesus today. Amen. Great. He loves you, and he will save you by his grace. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will just descend upon us that whatever it is we don't understand about this passage, we would cling to Jesus. Whatever it is we need to be warned about, it would come into our hearts and we'd receive it. And then we would cling to you and trust in you with all our heart. And be reminded that the promise is that whoever looks to the Son shall have life, life eternal. And I pray that that will mark us today, that we'd be people who respond to your Holy Spirit as we've heard you, we believe you, and we obey you. This is what we pray for in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to talk with somebody about where you're at spiritually, a couple of us will be down here. You can come during our song as we sing, or right after the service. We'd be happy to pray with you. I, I urge you not to leave church without settling what you know for sure about Jesus. All right, let's stand together and sing.